Well, good morning. Wonderful to be in the Lord's house together. Wonderful to see your faces here this morning Bible study. And uh, let us just open with prayer and ask, ask our Sovereign Lord to help us as we come to this confession and to his word. Father God, we do just pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds for this glorious day that you've set one day in seven to gather as your people to glorify your name, to be blessed by the means of grace, to be built up for service in the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be attentive, that our minds would be sharp. Lord, that my words would be plain and clear. And Lord, as we consider this um, manner in which uh, faithful men have confessed uh, the, the leading doctrines of Scripture, we pray that you'd give us special insight and wisdom to evaluate, to consider, and to weigh according to the scriptures what they've written, and to be edified by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are um, working through the early chapters of the Second London Baptist Confession, the 1689 Baptist Confession, and we've come now to chapter 5, and I'm not quite sure how many chapters we're going to do. Um, maybe we will do one more. I'm not sure. Um, but once you get to the end of chapter 6, you're, you're no longer dealing with preliminary things. You're into more the doctrine of salvation, uh, starting with the covenant of God and the Christ the mediator and so on. So we may take a break there. We'll see. Um, but we are... Uh, dealing with chapter 5 of the Confession, which is on, uh, or called, Of Divine Providence. Now that's an interesting word, providence. Um, would anybody like to try and define it very quickly, off the top of your head? It is um, uh, defined for us in the first paragraph. So let me just read the first paragraph to you. It says this, God, the good creator of all things, we've got that on the screen, very good. The good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom doth uphold, direct, dispose and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least, but by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according, un, according unto his infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness and mercy. So providence, you could think of as the, the other side of God's sovereignty. So God's sovereignty uh, really consists in two things. It consists in his divine decree, uh, what he wills to happen and what he declares uh, will be, and his providence, which is the means by which he governs and directs the universe uh, according to their decreed ends. So the decree could be, uh, in some ways, the mind of God and the, um, the providence being the doings of God, uh, bringing about what his mind has conceived and decreed. Um, that is probably uh, a good enough definition to understand what's really being said in this um, doctrine of providence. It is essentially a denial of deism, which is the idea that God simply sets up the world and hits the start button and then lets it go wherever it will go. 
Um, God doesn't do that. We don't believe in a God who simply creates and lets alone. We believe in a God who creates, sustains, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs uh, all creatures, both great and small, every single thing in the universe, great and small, by his most wise and holy providence. He upholds in the sense that he sustains everything in life and existence. Everything within the world is sustained and maintained by God. Uh, It is directed towards its intended ends. It is disposed in the sense of utilised and arranged. All things are at his disposal. And it is governed, ruled by him. Every single atom, every single speck of dust. Now this, uh, if you want to blow your own mind, you could think of it this way. Kings and princes in this world, all directed by the sovereign power of God, okay, those are the big things of the world, everything down to the smallest speck of dust on the most distant planet in the universe. All of that governed, determined, decreed by God. So galaxies that we haven't even heard of or haven't even been discovered by the most powerful telescopes on the other side of the universe, specks of dust on that planet were all sovereignly decreed to move in a particular pathway through their time of existence and are governed to do so directly by God's providential power. If you want to de-domesticate your view of God, just think about how sovereign he really is over all of these things. Everything under the sovereign power of God. Now you might think, well that's a bit of an overkill, why does he have to be so involved? Well it's actually not difficult for him, it's Uh, quite in keeping with his nature. In fact, I would say it's probably more difficult for him not to be providentially overseeing all things than it is for him to be doing so. It is so within his sovereign power to be in charge that these things fall out so naturally from his power and his deity. And they are intended to cause us to fall down in worship. This has been revealed to us in the scriptures that it might be a basis for our love and um, adoration of our sovereign God. It is a marvellous, marvellous thing. It is, uh, everything happens according to his um, infallible foreknowledge, we're told. Now that um, is not suggesting that uh, he simply reacts to what he foreknows. It is simply saying that everything that happens is perfectly in line with what he knew would happen. Um, It all happens according to his infallible foreknowledge. And then there is an interesting interesting change that uh, is difficult to spot unless somebody points it out. From the Westminster, uh, in the very first line, it says that God, the good creator of all things. Now, I want you to notice that. It says God, the good creator of all things. And then the very last line, it says, according to his infinite goodness and mercy. Now, the Westminster Confession doesn't say that. Let me just give you what the Westminster says. It says, God, the great great creator, God, the great creator, and then in the last line it says, according to his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So the, um, the, the London Confession, the second London Baptist Confession, changes great to good 
and adds infinite before the word goodness in the last line. Those are the two changes that it makes to this paragraph. Now you might say, well, changing God from great to good is a bit of a downgrade. Why would they do that? Why do you think they did that? Have a think. What do you think might be the motivation behind emphasising God's goodness when it comes to his providence? Yeah, yeah. Amen. That's right. So by this time, um, the, by the time the, Sun, the London Baptist Confession comes out, Arminianism is um, somewhat uh, invasive, um, and criticisms of the um, reformed understanding of God's sovereignty and providence are underway. And there did seem to be an opportunity here to just clarify that we're not simply talking about a, a great sovereign God who just determines what will be. We're talking about an infinitely good God who determines what will be. Uh, a God who is so good and so wonderful and the creator of all things. And so it was a, a useful change to make. And I, I stress again that most of the changes in language from the Westminster to the Baptist don't signal a change in theology. There isn't really a change in the understanding of those who wrote the Westminster to those who wrote the London Baptist. It's simply an opportunity to tweak the language so as to counteract some of the objections that come along. Okay? Because the confession is going to go on <coughs> to say some pretty incredible things about God's providence. It's going to go on to talk about providence over good and evil. It's going to talk about providence over the fall of man right from the start and over the entire course of history and every sin that takes place within it, both done by men and angels. God sovereignly and providentially ordaining and purposefully bringing about all of these things. And so it wants to stress at the very outset of this chapter that we are talking about a good God, an infinitely good God, who even whilst ordaining these things, does so for a perfectly good cause. And that is important to be pressed upon us at the outset. So we come to paragraph two, and I'm, there are actually seven paragraphs, and I want to do all of them today. Um, so we're probably going to read them and maybe not make lots of comments about every paragraph, but I would like to read them. So, uh, paragraph two of Divine Providence, it says, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, that is, without change and without fail, so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence, Yet, by the same providence, he ordaineth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So, a paragraph that simply points out that there are first causes and there are second causes, and that God is the first cause of all things. And it is that distinction that helps us to navigate the tricky problem of God's ordaining of evil. Uh, see, God ordaining evil as a first cause 
can in fact relieve him of the responsibility and the stain of the sin that might be uh, that might happen in due course. And we talked about this um, a couple of chapters ago when we were talking about God's sovereignty over these things, um, that he is not stained whatsoever in his holiness by being the sovereign God over sin and evil. So you can think of a first and second cause a bit like this. If you have a builder building a house, hitting a nail into a piece of wood, what is the cause of the nail going into the piece of wood? You could say it's the builder. You could say it's the hammer. The hammer would be the second cause. The builder would be the first cause. But in fact, you could also say that the builder is not really the first cause, but the architect is the first cause. And then the second cause would be the builder, and then another cause, another secondary cause would be the hammer. But then you could say that actually even the architect is not the first cause. The first cause would be the client who would uh, pay the architect to design the building, the builder then builds the building, the hammer then hits the nail, the nail goes into the wood. And what the confession is saying and what scripture tells us is that in fact the first cause of all things is God. The first cause of all things is God. And the secondary causes are creaturely. So that is the point that's being stressed in that paragraph. Now, paragraph three, let me read it to you. It's very, very short, one sentence. It says, God in his ordinary providence, now that's an important word, phrase, ordinary providence maketh use of means, okay, so the architect, the builder, the, uh, the hammer, the nail, these are means, he maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. Okay. Is free to work above, against, and uh, without. Um, can we just get a, a couple of scriptures read out for us? So there's an example of God in his ordinary, prov- uh, sorry, God in his providence working above, um, sorry, working without means. And that would be, uh, you can see the reference there, Hosea 1 and verse 7. Um, Philip is turning there. Thank you, Philip. Um, then there is an example of him working above means. We have uh, Romans 4 and verse 19. Could somebody volunteer? Thank you, Joe. Romans 4, 19 and 21. And then we have an example of God working against means. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 27. Can we have somebody who would be willing to read Daniel chapter 3 and verse 27. Thank you, Angeline. Okay, so this is just to help us get a sense of what is meant when it says uh, that God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, against them, and against them in his, at his pleasure. So, can we have Hosea 1 and verse 7, which is him working without means? But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. Okay. So this is God saying that he is going to supernaturally save his people, and he is going to not use an army or uh, a weapon to do so. He is going to work, in other words, without means. Okay, so the means, of course, is the bow, the army, and so on, which he regularly does use. But in that circumstance, he says, I'm not going to use those means. So he works um, without means. Okay, 
So an example of God working above means, uh, Romans 4 and verse 19 through 21, Job. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own glory already dead when he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Okay. So the example there of Sarah and Abraham and their old age and the promise that had been made that they would produce a son. Um, now, uh, the ordinary means by which sons are produced is by a man and a woman uh, naturally conceiving a son. So there is a sense in which God is using that means to produce this son. But there is also a sense in which he is overseeing that means, he is above that means, in the sense that this particular couple is of let, uh, um, latter years and they are unable to have children uh, uh, through the natural means. There needs to be some sort of supernatural uh, overseeing, supernatural enabling, and that's what's being referred to here as God above the means. And so uh, we could think of examples in our own life where you can look at things happening which you could, you could credit to some kind of means that God used, but there was clearly some supernatural intervention along the way as well. That is God operating providentially above means, according to this confession. Okay, the last example being God working against means. Okay, Daniel chapter 3 and verse 27. Who's got that for us, Angeline? Yeah. So they're in the fire. The normal way in which God uses fire as a means is to burn things, right? The fire normally burns things. And yet this is God working against means. Fire is normally a means to burn. In this circumstance it was not. God worked against it in order to bring about what he had providentially determined. That is the rescue of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So, here we're just being told that God, uh, in his ordinary providence, uses means. However, there are times of extraordinary providence. There are times where God works without, that's extraordinary, uh, against and above means. Uh, this would include the miraculous and various interventions that God uh, brings about, all of which, and the point being, all of which are part of God's providence. The ordinary means are part of God's providence, and the extraordinary means are part of God's providence. That everything that is a means of achieving anything is a means of God. Do you hear that? Anything that is a means of achieving anything is a means of God. Okay. Okay, now the next uh, three paragraphs are where the thorns start to poke us a little bit, and it starts to become um, a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit tricky. This is where we are told in the confession uh, that God is providentially using sin and sinners to bring about his most holy ends, just and holy ends. Okay, so the first of those three paragraphs, paragraph four, 
is to do with God's providence over sin in general. Paragraph 5 is to do with God's providence over believers and their sin. And paragraph 6 is to do with his sovereignty as providence over unbelievers and their sin. Okay, so let's just go through those uh, together and try to um, understand as best we are able to the force of the argument here. So again, paragraph 4 begins... uh, (coughs) with that reference to God's infinite goodness. And that's worth noticing. It says, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinative counsel, which is another way of talking about his decree, extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions uh, doth of angels, both of angels and men, And that not by bare permission, see that, they're not allowing any escaper out here. He's not just giving them permission to happen, it's not just that. Which also he most wisely and powerfully uh, boundeth and otherwise ordereth and governeth to the manifold dispensation of his most holy ends. That is the many different ways that his holy ends work themselves out. Yet so is the sinfulness of their actions proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God. The sin comes only from the creature, not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Now, to a certain degree, the um, confession is not always interested in untying the theological knots that it creates. It is simply trying to tell you what the Bible says that the Bible certainly says that God is sovereignly over all things, that he works all things after the counsel of his own will, that he does decree whatsoever comes to pass, uh, and yet so he is not the author of sin or have any fellowship with sin, that we are the ones who are guilty for sin and ought to be punished for sin. And um, I would encourage you to look back at the study we did on chapter 3 of the Confession, uh, which is to do with God's decree where it talks about God ordaining whatsoever comes to pass, uh, yet in a way, let me just read it to you, God uh, hath decreed in himself from eternity by his most holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever come to pass, yet so is thereby God is neither the author of sin nor hath fellowship therein, nor does violence to the will of the creature. So, uh, we, we unpacked that and we looked at the biblical examples given and so I won't try and do that all again here but this is what is being added in this um, paragraph first of all it is saying it is asking the question rather how far does the providence of God extend and to what degree does its infinite, the infinite goodness and unsearchable wisdom of almighty God manifest themselves How far do those things extend? And how far do we look to find the unsearchable wisdom and infinite goodness of God? And this is how far they extend. All the way back to the fall of man. And every sinful action of both angels and men. It says, so far manifest themselves, the infinite goodness of God, so far manifests themselves in his providence that his determinative counsel extends itself even to the first fall 
and all other sinful actions both of angels and men. That is to say that the fall and every single sin since the fall and even sins before the fall, angels as well, uh, manifest, or at least will manifest if we don't have them manifest perfectly yet, the infinite goodness and unsearchable wisdom of God. Maybe you've thought about this. I don't know if you have. But what do we ask the question? What good, what possible good could we imagine or see coming out of the fall of mankind? What do you think? Have you thought about this? So a, a very plain and obvious one. The, the grace of God and the forgiveness of God would be redundant and unnecessary if there was no fall. And God is glorified in the manifestation of his grace, is he not? The worship that we have of God, the love that we have of God, the one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who is forgiven little loves little. The one who is forgiven nothing could potentially love nothing. Uh, the the mechanism of increasing love for God included sin. Sin's forgiven. Amen? What would be another uh, possible outcome of the fall, good outcome of the fall? Yeah, God's, God's wrath against sin. Um, wrath against sin is a good thing. It's not a happy thing. It's not a thing we should laugh about or smile about, but it is a good thing. It is a thing that demonstrates God's holiness, God's righteousness. It demonstrates um, his infinite, um, the, the infinite contrast of his character with sin and wickedness. It glorifies his holiness in that way. It is another thing that it does. Another thing that it does is, and I think we see this more and more in our society today, is it demonstrates the folly of sin. It demonstrates just how foolish it is to sin against God's design and God's um, purposes and God's law. We see the world fall apart. We see lives fall apart. We've seen our own lives fall apart because of sin's corrosion and wickedness within our lives. And so the folly of sin is destroyed and the glory of righteousness and wisdom is presented. All of these things made possible because of the fall. Now, we don't look at the fall and say, what a wonderful, wonderful thing. But we do recognise that the goodness of God is manifest through the fall. That he decreed the fall in order to manifest the infinite goodness of his character. Okay? And every sin beyond that. And then it, it, it destroys this little escape route that people like to have. So it says, um, uh, this, it extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men... And that not by bare permission. Okay? Now, wouldn't it be kind of nice if they didn't put that in there? Um, you could come to this and say, yes, yes, but really what God does is he just gives permission. He just, he just lets it happen. That's, that's all he's doing. He's not doing anything else. It's just permission. He knows it's going to happen. He knows it'll happen, and he might work some uh, positive outcome, some silver lining into it. But really it is just him letting it happen. He's not doing anything else. And the confession wants to close that option to us. Uh, and the Bible, I, I think, certainly wants to close that option to us because 
Imagine if it was the case that God simply allowed <coughs> sin to happen. Just imagine, just go with that a little bit in your mind. If that's all God, if it was just a bare permission, he simply allowed it. The first consequence of that is that God isn't sovereign. That would be the first consequence. Um, the second consequence would be that any good or any um, silver lining that he brought out of that sin or that wickedness would be dictated to him by the circumstances he was dealing with. He would be limited by the situation and there would be limits on the good he could bring out of it. Whereas if you say that God ordained it, then you can say that God designed it from the very outset to produce a specific outcome that he had intended. That God was creating the good outcome through the sin that was a means by which it was achieved. Understand? So, of course, we go to the, the greatest example of this being the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was, of course, uh, done according to the hands of sinful men, and yet it was all predestined according to God's eternal purposes. It was the worst thing that could ever happen, and yet it produced the greatest result. God, in his des desire to save his people, uh, that being the design of that sin, then ordained the sin in order to bring about that design. I mean, is that, does that work in your mind? That the means by which God was going to save his people was to have his son crucified on a cross, and the means by which he was going to have his son crucified on a cross was to have sinners do it by their own uh, free choice. Make sense? Now, there is a, another um, question that could be raised if God simply permits the sin. Um, and that is, is God really good? <laughs> I don't know if you've thought about this. Like, I think people say, oh, God just permits it and then uses it for good as a kind of escape route from having to reckon with God ordaining something to be, that is evil to take place. And they think that somehow uh, protects God from the stain of wickedness. I'm not sure it does. Because now you've got a God who knows things are going to happen that are bad um, and who has created the world in such a way as to allow this to take place, who could intervene very easily and decides not to. There is, I think, a moral culpability just in that. And I think probably the best way to relieve God, if you like, of that potential stain is to confess with the confession and with the scriptures that the only reason that evil was ever mixed into the, the storyline, if you like, was because God had some wonderful purpose that he had in mind, which it was going to create, i.e. the salvation of sinners from the wrath of God by the death of Jesus on the cross, brought about by the sinful actions of Pontius Pilate and the Romans to crucify him on the cross. You see? God is infinitely good because he sovereignly works these things for infinitely good purposes. According to his most wise and powerful, uh, uh, sorry, which also he most wisely and powerfully bindeth, uh, otherwise ordereth and governeth according to his manifold dispensation of his most, to his most holy ends. Most holy ends. That's the point. All according to most holy ends. That's the desire. Okay, ver uh, chapter, sorry, um, paragraph five. This one has um, some special pastoral impact uh, for us as Christians. 
Let me read it to you. It says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own heart, in other words, lets them sin, to chastise them for former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled and to rise them, raise them uh, to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. Isn't that incredible? The, um, that last statement there, of course, being Romans 8.28, it's got to be one of my favourite verses. That God works all things together for good for those who are called, who love the Lord. Now, it would be tempting, I think, to read that verse in Romans 8.28 and look at and say, well, God's talking about good, God's talking about not sinful things, right? God works all good things together for our good. <laughs> God works all morally neutral things together for our good. And not say God works all evil things, including our own evil and our own sin, together for our good. It would be tempting to say that. The trouble is the context in which it is said is just filled with all sorts of wicked things which Paul is wanting to give comfort against. So you're talking about the creation groaning because of corruption and sin. Talking about the, um, the, uh, the, the threat of being separated from Christ through, through temptation, through sin, through the world's powers. And nothing will separate you from Christ. It's all in that context that Paul then declares, and all things work together for good, for those who love the Lord according to his purposes. And the confession gives us a, a couple of examples of how that, how the sin and the temptation in the human heart and the heart of Christians can work itself out for just and holy ends. Uh, first of all, it can uh, discipline us to chastise us for former sins, causing us to realise the consequences of our sin, that sin produces more sin, that temptation produces more temptation. That if we don't cut off sin, if we don't repent deeply of sin, the temptation remains, the temptation continues. And so struggling with sin and the corruption of heart in an ongoing way could be part of God's teaching you uh, how destructive sin can be if it is allowed to form a pattern in your life. So this is chastising for former sins. Or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness in their hearts, that they may be humbled. Uh, how many of you have um, battled with a sin for a time and then felt like you have beaten it and now you're thinking, well, look how holy I am. I, I haven't done that for like six months now or a year now. And uh, then, you know, what's going to happen next? As the temptation comes again, the fall happens again and you're reminded again that actually you are very, very weak. Very, very weak. And you need to be humbled and brought to dependence on God. It states a few purposes for these um, temptations and corruptions. It says that you might be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself 
and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends. It is, it is tremendously comforting to know that the life that the Christian lives, no matter how um, filled with mistakes and stumbling it is, is all worked according to the holy counsel of God to bring about good and holy ends. Is that not encouraging? You know, that's only true if God is sovereign over all things. If God is sovereign over sin and death and corruption and everything. This is a a thorny doctrine. Uh, You have to sort of climb through the thorns to get to the rose. There you go, I've made a wee metaphor for you. Um, There is some prickly bits to deal with, but it is beautiful once you see it. Okay. Uh, paragraph 6 uh, now these I'm just going to read to you we're not going to make um, tremendous comments on them um, paragraph 6 says this as for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as a righteous judge for former sins doth blind and harden from them he not only withdraweth his grace whereby Uh, They might have been enlightened in their understanding and brought unto uh, and brought uh, and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts that they had and exposeth them them to such objects as their corruptions make occasion for sin of sin and withdraw uh, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. Now this is uh, a, a statement that simply is saying that sin leads to hardening, that hardening leads to more sin, that sin leads to more hardening. And that it is the Lord who must release a person and hand them over to that hardening if it is to take place. Uh, it is um, that which does take place in unbelievers to varying degrees. Okay, and then I want to just read the last paragraph as we finish. Uh, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. And in some ways that is just a um, attack on to paragraph 5, but with respect to the church, that um, God is providentially working all things for his glory uh, in all creatures, but in a special manner is using all things to take care of his special people, the church, and disposing all things for their good, even the wickedness within our own hearts. Okay, any questions? Otherwise we will finish there. Any questions? Okay. Very good. We will pray. Uh, Lord God, we we bow before your sovereign wisdom. We are a people that is slow to understand, slow to trust, 
Lord, forgive us for that. Lord, we have so often uh, limited your sovereignty over things. We have so often failed to recognise your power in all things. We have so often failed to trust that even things that seem so bizarre and out of place are according to your good purposes to bring about good ends. Father, we pray that we would be a people that recognises that you are God and not us, that you do according to your will and that your will is holy and good. Father, we do celebrate the fact that we are a people called by grace and that because of that we have been selected for good things and that all things work together to achieve that good end. And Lord, this is immense comfort to us. Lord, help us to hold to this, to trust in it, to walk in it every day. Lord, glorify yourself in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.